Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident hemophilia patient, and this is episode five of the Global Hemophilia Report. Today's topic, the intersectionality between hemophilia and mental health in young people. It's a highly topical issue, particularly as the pandemic and post-pandemic period continues to unfold. So don't go anywhere. We will be straight back after this quick message. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com. Now, before we get sucked into all things mental health and young people living with hemophilia, I'm really delighted to be joined by a guest co-host for this episode of the Global Hemophilia Report. Please join me, listeners, in welcoming fellow community advocate, peer, and friend of mine from all the way across the other side of the Atlantic, Lawrence Woolard. Hi, Patrick. It's great to be here. Lawrence, it's great to have you here. And for those who don't know, would you mind briefly telling the listeners your story and what brings you to the Global Hemophilia Report? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I'm I'm really proud to call myself a member of the Global Inherited Bleeding Disorders community, as I'm a person that lives with severe hemophilia. Um, I'm based near Cambridge in the United Kingdom and actively engaged in hemophilia and rare disease patient advocacy, both at home and around the world. I'm inherently motivated and committed to improving the health outcomes of my peers and other individuals impacted by long-term chronic conditions, principally through improving patient access to culturally responsive educational programming with the purpose of engendering individual agency and empowerment for improved self-management and treatment choice. Um, I was already a fan of and, and subscriber to the Global Hemophilia Report which has been tackling some of the biggest challenges that people living with our condition face, whilst bringing listeners closer to the clinicians, researchers and scientists working hard to overcome these barriers to optimal care, as well as hearing from the most important contributors of them all patients and caregivers themselves. Yes, I might be biased, but their insights and perspectives really help to contextualise how research and innovation is making a difference on the ground. All in all, I'm super excited to be part of this platform and movement. So thanks so much, Patrick. Thank you, Lawrence. We are so happy to have you here. This episode was a truly collaborative effort between Lawrence and myself, overseen by the Global Hemophilia Report's senior advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly, and our two guest advisors, Samantha Carlson and Dr. Michelle Whitkop from the National Hemophilia Foundation, or NHF for short, in the United States, and you'll hear from them a bit later. As co-hosts for this episode, Lawrence and I will be sharing the mic, as it were, And it only feels right to hand over to Lawrence for the opening segment so that he can set the scene as we look to understand the intersectionality of hemophilia and mental health in adolescents and young adults. But just before I do that, a trigger warning. In this episode, we will be touching on some things like self-harm and suicidality, topics that are critical to discuss. But Lawrence and I do want you to have a bit of a fair warning that we are going to be diving in. With that, Lawrence, over to you. It's the year 2001. A new youth subculture of emo, short for emotional hardcore, was transcending into the mainstream, epitomized by the holy trinity of emo bands, My Chemical Romance, Fall Out Boy, and Panic at the Disco. Whenever the word emo is invoked, it usually, and maybe unfairly, calls to mind angsty teenagers dressed in black from head to toe with multiple face piercings, looking solemn near the back of the school bus. I mean, there's some truth in it. I was a huge fan of Linkin Park and even persuaded my mum to dye my hair bright blonde like the lead vocalist Chester Bennington. If you've ever seen the video to their hit single Crawling, you'll know why. Like many people, music plays a prominent role in my everyday life. It can be a means of self-identification, especially in adolescence where musical choices act as a badge of honour, satisfying social, emotional and developmental needs. 
Back in the early millennia, looking and dressing like my favourite singer was a form of self-expression, and I was using music as a type of coping mechanism, living with my haemophilia, reflecting a desire for acceptance with non-effective friends as I moved anxiously into high school. By this stage, I also sensed a huge expectation or burden to take greater personal responsibility for my condition, while at the same time dealing with the hormonal roller coaster ride that is puberty. In essence, adolescents and young adults, those aged around 10 to 24 years old, living with haemophilia, experience the same life stresses as those without the condition yet face additional mental health challenges that are either accentuated or specifically related to having a bleeding disorder. The perception of being different and not fitting in that I was constantly battling with myself can be as a result of both condition and therapy-related constraints on social participation that constrain family and peer relationships. Added to this are difficulties with school and work functioning, as well as social isolation and exclusion from age-appropriate activities, such as particular sports. This is true for all affected persons, but might be experienced differentially, depending on age, sex, gender, race, culture, and or social determinants of general health. That said, it was only as recently as March this year that the Washington Post highlighted a mental health crisis affecting children and adolescents in the US alone that was decades in the making and to which American society has turned a blind eye. Likewise, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's Youth Risk Behaviour Surveillance System observed concerning pre-COVID mental health trends among US high school students, whereby in 2019, more than one in three had experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, and approximately one in six youth reported making a suicide plan in the past year a 40 and 44% increase since 2009, respectively. Globally speaking, the pandemic has resulted in an increase in anxiety and major depressive disorders in young people, which are both risk factors for self-harm. According to a landmark study published in 2021 by the children's charity UNICEF, around 9 million adolescents aged 10 to 19 in Europe live with a mental disorder while suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people in Europe, only after road injury. From an economic perspective, a joint report issued early this year by Mental Health Foundation and the London School of Economics and Political Science estimated that mental health problems cost the UK economy upwards of £118 billion annually, which accounts for around 5% of the UK's gross domestic product. Considering chronic illness in itself is an additional strain on mental health and health-related quality of life, do we truly understand how much living with haemophilia impacts the mental health of today's generation of young people in our community? I think about a teen coming into their own identity and figuring out who they are as a person and where they fit into society and part of their identity may be that they are a person living with a chronic illness. And what does that look like for them? This is Amanda Stahl. She is an experienced adult clinical social worker at the Boston Hemophilia Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts in the United States. As a social worker, I wear many hats. My primary role is to provide kind of clinical mental health support to the patients at our hemophilia treatment center. I also do a lot of mental health assessments, just try to find ways uh, in which we can kind of help our patients as best we can with the resources that we have. I was thinking about the resilience in our community in the context of COVID. I interviewed so many of our patients who came in and I was so worried about how they would be coping with this global pandemic. And so many of our patients answered me by saying, I've been through so much in my life. This is nothing. Like I can handle anything because of what I've been through. And so I wonder what it's like for a teenager, maybe who has already been so vulnerable, right, as a kid who's forced to interact with the medical system on a regular basis. They know nothing else. And then they come into this identity search already having had to be vulnerable. I think it does build a certain level of resilience in our patients that 
is really special and important. It's known that young people living with long-term conditions can develop strategies to manage their identities so that they can incorporate chronic illness into their current and future lives. However, this is particularly challenging in adolescence when identity formation is considered to be one of the key developmental tasks of transition to independence. Randall Curtis, known to many as Randy, who has lived with severe hemophilia for over six decades and researches the cost of care and burden of illness in hemophilia and other blood disorders, speaks to some of the identity dynamics that young people living with hemophilia are navigating. They, they have all the challenges of normal coming of age, but with extras, right? The transitioning from pediatric care to adult centers, uh, when, where they have had long-term relationships with their pediatric clinicians and going into this new area, and finding school and or work with medical coverage and keeping up with prophylaxis now that mommy is gone. All of these things present challenges to their mental health. And this is happening at a time when their hormones are raging and they're discovering all the freedoms of, of this new life with little or no problems with hemophilia in their own minds. And then coming to the realization that there is pain and bleeding and all that stuff that comes with that and trying to balance that with trying to fit in and make new friends and how they discuss hemophilia with their friends. This presents a number of mental health challenges for these young men. Randy just alluded to the transfer of care from pediatric to adult services. This is often mistaken for the planned and purposeful movement of young adults living with a chronic condition like hemophilia from child-centered to adult-oriented healthcare systems, which is referred to as transition. We know from evidence that good practice in transitional care can improve ongoing engagement of young people with their healthcare services and continuity of quality care leading to positive health behavior changes. To dispel any doubts between these two distinct concepts and to define what a successful transition looks like, here is Dr. Duke Tran, who goes by the name of Bobby, an adult hematologist at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, United States, and who lives with severe hemophilia himself. So transfer of care is the actual transfer from a pediatric location to an adult location or clinic. Whereas transition should be looked at more as a process that is initiated in the pediatric center, but is carried out and continued through the adult center as well. As far as successful transition goes, what we should think about is that the timing of the transition should be individualized and it should not necessarily be based on a chronological age. Definitely, it should not center around an acute medical event. Transition should start at an early age involving not only the patients, but also their families as well. Successful transition has been shown to be crucial to future health outcomes as well as self-management skills. We'll return to Dr. Tran and transition a bit later in the episode. For now, let's explore what the existing research and evidence base tells us about the impact of haemophilia on mental health in adolescence and young adulthood. That's next, right after this quick break. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program, fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries. 
an important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit sanofihemophilia.com. Welcome back. We kick off this next segment on existing research and evidence with Dr. Michelle Whitcop, a nurse practitioner by trade who works as the Vice President of Research Strategy for the National Haemophilia Foundation of the USA. Regretfully, we don't know enough. The research is minimal. We have just started getting information about mental health in the adult population, looking at anxiety and depression in women and men. But as we look into this population, adolescents and young adults, we have less data available. It's definitely an area that needs more research and more observation. My name is Gronya O'Brien. I am a clinical psychologist and I work with children, young people, adults and families with inherited bleeding disorders. I am based in Edinburgh in Scotland. Within haemophilia, we see far more research into the adult population, but I think we are seeing a massive recognition of mental health issues across the general population. And I think post-COVID, we are seeing an increase anyway in anxiety and depression. People with haemophilia are not exempt from the normal pressures and stresses of life. We know people with haemophilia across the world are reporting higher levels of anxiety and depression, lowered quality of life, impact on self-efficacy, so their belief in their own ability to manage their condition. All of these things will have an impact on day-to-day -day functioning. The pandemic has had a big impact on our focus. That's Dr. Michelle Whitcock again. We see mental health as being a big issue, and it's regretful that something as impactful as a, a pandemic had to happen in order to change our perspective on these issues. But this is uh, my personal opinion, but I feel that people have felt that there's just not an issue. Kids don't have problems. Adolescents don't. It's just a normal part of growing up. They'll grow out of it. They don't look at it as a serious issue, something that needs to be addressed, to be evaluated and to be treated. And of course, we all understand the stigma associated with mental health. And hopefully we are growing as a society so that we can move beyond that stigma and start looking at the underlying causes of this. So, as both Michelle and Gronier implied, mental health and health-related quality of life in young people living with haemophilia is under-researched. There have been some attempts to understand young adult mental health within the context of an underlying bleeding disorder and the psychosocial ramifications of physical ill health from the complications of haemophilia. Although the separate studies' use of different instruments and measurements means the results can be confusing. One example is the Haemophilia Experiences, Results and Opportunities, or HERO, initiative, which was developed to provide a greater understanding of the psychological components that influence the lives of people living with haemophilia. A subset analysis of the young adult enrollees aged 18 to 30 in the 2011 International HERO survey revealed that symptoms of anxiety, depression, stress and or insomnia were self-reported in 43% of global respondents, while that rate for US participants was 53%. The study identified young adults as a vulnerable group and in need of multidisciplinary attention and care to successfully negotiate the transition to independence and a healthy adulthood. It isn't surprising that came up, not at all. The associated issues with those chronic disorders, pain, the financial aspect of it, which they're just at that age starting to understand, trying to fit in. Another notable initiative was the Haemophilia Utilization Group Study, or HUGS for short, that primarily investigated the cost of illness of people living with haemophilia. 
In one of the study parts, the researchers examined the impact of haemophilia on physical and social functioning and quality of life amongst an age-matched US cohort of 141 young men aged 18 to 34 who received care at 10 geographically diverse, federally funded haemophilia treatment centres in 11 states between 2005 and 2013. As project manager and lead author, Randy provides an overview of their findings as it relates to mental health. These were primarily burden of illness studies and quality of life studies, which didn't really have a mental health component per se. But we did find that 35% reported pain that, that pain did not interfere with their usual activities. And 48% pain interfered just a little or a moderate amount with their usual activities. So that's a very large chunk of this population reporting that pain was not a big part of their life. And yet 90% of them reported joint pain of some type. So they're experiencing pain, but in their minds, they aren't being impacted by it. This kind of goes back to what Jamie O'Hara refers to as the disability paradox. Jamie O'Hara is a fellow Brit and well-known health economist and advocate within the global bleeding disorders community who led on a major study to quantify the cost of haemophilia across Europe from a socioeconomic perspective, known as CHESS, and whom Randy has collaborated with in the past. So these young men, when you ask them on a scale of 1 to 100 how they are doing, they'll say 70. Whereas if you talk to their colleagues without hemophilia and who look at them and look at whatever disability they have, be it minor or not, and the fact that they have to infuse or do something to do with their health, their colleagues would point them at like a 40 or 45 on that scale. So these young men, if their mental health is good, they feel like they're normal, they're acting like they're normal, but the concern is that they may be downplaying any kind of joint bleeds or bleeding that may be coming from perhaps a lack of adherence to their normal prophylactic regimen. That's the kind of thing that we don't know. And it's really hard to measure. It's really hard to collect that kind of data. Considering the paucity of research on the mental health functioning of young people living with hemophilia, it seems natural to turn to studies of adult hemophilia that may provide some clues as it relates to adolescents and young adults. In particular, the understanding that, according to some research anyway, chronic illness itself may not increase the risk of depression and anxiety, but pain associated with chronic disorders does. Another notable data point from adult studies, the combination of pain and depression predicts worse clinical outcomes than either symptom alone. Once again, here is Dr. Michelle Wickop. My expertise is really in pain, thinking about pain management. And mental health and pain management are, when we talk about intersectionality, they very much intersect. From a pain perspective, pain is very interrelated in the brain. And the connections and the connectivity in the brain is very organic. So pain is not just a matter of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, pick yourself up, get yourself better, have a better outlook. It is a very organic change in your body that affects your mental health. Uh, it's a very chemical change in your body. And so hemophilia has very structural reasons for having pain. And they can also then cause very structural reasons for having anxiety and depression because of the effects on those chemical changes in your body. A colleague of Michelle's, Samantha Carlson, is the Senior Manager of Research Programs and Partnerships at the NHF and was a practicing social worker within the hemophilia clinical setting out of West Michigan in the U.S. for about 10 years. So part of my role at the treatment center was I was also the palliative care social worker. And what that means is this, a social worker that's really specialized in pain management. And what we know about pain and how it's processed in our body and our brain is sometimes pain is a way for us to articulate our emotional pain, our physical pain, as well as our mental health pain, whether it's pain, stress, 
or emotional um, distress or mental health issues, it's physically impossible for us to keep serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, the chemistry makeup in our brain that keeps our mood regulated, physically impossible for that to be at normal levels if you have chronic pain. So pain and depression often go hand in hand and they go undiagnosed because a lot of times their symptoms mask each other. The same with anxiety. Part of what we try to do in an interdisciplinary team is address all of that together. And having those conversations, providing education on what that looks like, making sure that people know they can talk to their healthcare teams about that, and then talking about what the options are that are best for them. Some people really find that if they walk 30 minutes a day, it helps build serotonin in their body and they feel like that addresses their mood issues. There's science behind that that says that exercise helps that, but that doesn't help everybody, especially people who have this chronic health condition where they might have joints that they just can't do that physical exercise. We're going to cover chronic pain and pain management in hemophilia in much more depth in a later episode of the Global Hemophilia Report, which is not to be missed, so don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. In the meantime, let's continue to explore whether we can draw on existing adult studies in hemophilia to help inform the mental health status of young people living with the condition. You may recall Amanda Stahl, the social worker in Boston from the top of the episode. Amanda has undertaken a U.S.-based study on the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, in chronic conditions, specifically hemophilia. The National Institute of Health in the U.S. defines PTSD as, quote, a disorder that develops in some people who have experienced a shocking, scary, or dangerous event, close quote, and who go on to re-experience initial symptoms after trauma for months or even years. Amanda paints the picture for us. I think when we're taking a step back and looking at depression and somebody's overall mental health picture, historically, we tend to think about it in the context of like, what's wrong with you? You know, there's something wrong with me. I am depressed. I can't get out of this. Where if someone has a chronic illness, it really needs to be reframed as to like, what happened to you to create this mental health sequelae in your life? This sort of brought up the study of trauma and PTSD. There are countless traumatic events in somebody who has hemophilia's life, not only infectious disease, but all the bleeds that they experience, paralysis that they have suffered, arthropathy, developing inhibitors. I was surprised that it had never been studied before, only because of the amount of trauma that this community has endured throughout time. That's surprising for me to learn as well. Now, before Amanda tells us what her research found, she made a reference to infectious disease, which relates to the period in the 1970s and 1980s when people living with hemophilia and other bleeding disorders were infected with HIV, hepatitis B and C, and a range of other blood-borne viruses that were in the blood products being administered to patients at the time. Samantha and Randy put some context to this. One of the most important things that we need to remember about the mental health for individuals living with hemophilia is the history of, unfortunately, contaminated blood in our community. It's really important if you're going to work in this space, especially in the mental health component of it, to know that history because we need to know where we, we've come from to know where we're going and how we can heal from it. If you think about the HIV epidemic and hepatitis problems, you can look back to about 1985, and that's when things basically kind of stopped. So anybody born after 1985, for the most part, does not have HIV or hepatitis C. That's the cutoff, that's like 30 or so. And if we look at that, then a lot of the pain and anxiety is due to poor care, liver disease, and the other sequelae that came from HIV and hepatitis. I don't know how predictive our current studies of middle-aged and older people with bleeding disorders is in comparison to the younger population. These are two different populations and we need to study them that way. Points well taken, Randy. Let's head back to Amanda to see whether there's any correlations with her own research findings into PTSD among adults living with severe hemophilia A and B. When I first started thinking through PTSD and trauma, a few 
people who I work with, one of them I remember mentioned like, oh, well, you know, the AIDS crisis is over. Therefore, our patients probably aren't really experiencing trauma the way they did in the 80s and 90s. And admittedly, I probably thought the same thing at the time. I thought that was undoubtedly a traumatic experience for this, this community. And that was sort of the basis for why I thought this was important to study. I partnered with two other hemophilia treatment centers, the Mount Sinai Hemophilia Treatment Center and the M Health Fairview Center for Bleeding and Clotting in Minneapolis. Two other social workers and I started collecting data data around trauma in our hemophilia population three years ago. We asked all the patients whether or not they had experienced a trauma related to their hemophilia throughout their lifetime. If yes, to identify what that trauma was, we gave them space to write down whatever the trauma was that they experienced and when it occurred in their life. We did release data to ISTH last year ISTH stands for the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis. They host an annual congress where thousands of the world's leading experts on thrombosis and hemostasis, including hemophilia, come together to present the newest study data and discuss the latest scientific innovations in the space. This year's congress, I'm inclined to mention, takes place in Lawrence's backyard in London between July 9th and 13th. Register now. So our ISDH data from last year preliminarily said 73% of our patients identified a trauma not related to an infectious disease, like a bleed or an injury. Infectious disease actually only accounted for 20% among all of the identified trauma that we had. 44% identified multiple themes of trauma. So they overlapped between non-infectious medical events, psychosocial, pain, We also looked back to see when they identified their trauma starting, and many of them identified that their trauma began in childhood. At the time, again, of ISDH, we had 70% of our participants who identified a traumatic event, specified that it occurred before age 18. So I think for young people, we should study more research around prevention and predictors of post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a lot more to study there. With the increased effectiveness of treatment, I wonder if patients can identify bleeds as well as they once could have. You know, it's opening a lot more questions, I think, than answers. So, Amanda's preliminary results demonstrated a high prevalence of PTSD among her study cohort of 72 adults who had a median age of 36 and a half, although this was largely attributed to trauma non-related to the history of treatment viral contamination and primarily occurred in childhood and adolescence. Clearly, since these participants were in their youth, the haemophilia community has witnessed a paradigm shift in models of care, not least a move towards preventative rather than reactive care, along with a new wave of treatment innovation that is individualised and enabling some young people a completely different experience and outlook on life living with haemophilia. Here's Dr. O'Brien. From a personal reflection, it is hard to compare chalk and cheese in a way because if somebody has only ever known prophylaxis and has never had the experience of having to attend hospital every time they've had to bleed it will be a very different experience growing up now we're told your life expectancy is the same as any other young person and we wouldn't expect you to miss that much school or be able to have employment however i wouldn't say necessarily the change in treatment has been massively life-changing for everybody. Not every person's prophylaxis works fantastically for them. There are still young people who are attending hospital quite frequently. There are still young people who are missing significant amounts of school. I think contaminated blood is a really interesting one because as a genetic condition, although the treatments that people are receiving now, we know that they go through so many safety checks, so many tests. It is very transparent what happens. There's a lot of very clear conversation about informed consent, about changing treatment and being involved in treatment, and it's very collaborative. However, in my experience of clinical work, there is a lot of intergenerational trauma. There's a lot of intergenerational history telling. So you may be speaking to an 11-year-old about starting a new treatment, and they may bring up the idea of the efficacy of long-term data. 
they might phrase it very differently to what I just said, but, but they may say, actually, I don't want to take a new treatment until it has been tested for X amount of time. So although there are young people and families who maybe haven't been impacted directly by contaminated blood, the community has been so impacted that it's led to some very natural health anxieties or mistrust or uncertainty around treatment. So can generations be compared equally to each other? No. However, there's probably far more similarities and there's just different challenges. I haven't seen very much research on this. That's Samantha Carlson speaking. I'm just taking the the lived experience that I've heard from patients in my current role as well as when I was in the clinic. Bridging the gap between the two generations, the younger generation has access to much more advanced care and they're living much more active lives. But when I've worked with younger adults, a lot of times they still have that fear and they still have the what ifs and they still have some of the hesitation because of the history this population has had. So it's very important as healthcare professionals that we all cultivate that ongoing discussion and and open the door to that discussion. Crawling in my skin, these wounds, they will not heal. Fear is how I fall, confusing. Lawrence, Lawrence. What, what, Patrick? You're singing to yourself, but into the mic so the listeners can hear you. This is the Global Hemophilia Report, Lawrence, and you're screaming like a screeching cat. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. It's, it's like I got caught, caught up in an emo moment, you know? It just, it, it, it happens now and again. Mm. I think it's just all this youth chat, Patrick, you know? It's making me crave a heavy dose of emo and pop-punk nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Man, I miss those days. Right. So um, so where were we? Well, up to now, we've realized that it's far from clear whether the literature on the impact of chronic illness on mental health or studies in adult hemophilia are relevant to the current crop of young people in our community. Right. So we need to find out two key things. Firstly... What research is still required to answer the most fundamental questions that would impact early diagnosis and access to care for mental health in this population of adolescents and young adults with hemophilia? And secondly, how could this research help optimize timely age-appropriate interventions and emotional support mechanisms? Got it. You do? You're back? We're done with the singing? (sighs) Yeah, I'm ready. And you know what? I know you might have some answers. Starting with Michelle Whitcock. Between the HERO study, the HUG study. These were the research initiatives that we heard about from Amanda Stoll and Randy Curtis earlier in the episode. There is some data in those age groups. That data is getting old. The HERO study was from, what, 2011. The HUG study was from, it looks like, 2005 to 2013, that data is getting old and it needs to be replicated. We need to look into it more. And again, mental health is coming more to the forefront. It is something that is being recognized as an issue that's impacting physical health. It's impacting adherence. We need to look at mental health and pain in order to understand the impact on adherence, which impacts all of the other things, bleeds, joint disease, all of that. And those are the baselines that we need to look at. And because we've ignored it in the past, it's rearing its ugly head right now. That's where we need to focus on in order to start having impact down the line on quality of life, on outcomes, on better health measures. I think we need to look at the baseline values for mental health in this population and do a more focused effort on collecting this information on a regular basis so that we can perhaps identify predictors of future mental health problems and then develop programs that can intervene early on. 
given the crisis we're in of their mental health. Like, I wonder how we can better support the young people right now. Some people don't have any interaction with the medical system except for their hemophilia treatment center. So I think there's a real opportunity for us to provide more mental health support. I think it would be really interesting to see how trauma changes over time. And with adolescents or younger people, maybe it would be worthwhile just to even ask them about their hemophilia-related trauma because I'm making assumptions even now saying like, well, I don't know if they would have perspective, but we don't know unless we, we ask. Amanda's right. How do we know the mental health needs of our young people if we don't ask rather than speaking at or about them? But playing devil's advocate for a second, during this transitional phase, young people are still finding themselves coming to terms with certain physical restrictions related to their haemophilia and learning to live in their own skin. So at which point does, quote-unquote, undesirable teen behaviour start to indicate mental health issues in someone living with a long-term condition? Over to Amanda again. This is sort of a more existential question about somebody who has been through a lot in the medical system You know, is there anything disordered about having a natural reaction maybe to needles? We have a lot of people with needle phobia, but like, is there anything disordered about having kind of emotional dysregulation around engaging with the medical system? Hyperarousal is a symptom of of post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's almost prescribed by the medical system when you have a chronic illness. You kind of have to be on high alert at all times because something could go wrong with your body and you're going to have to seek care. I don't know if that's disordered. I also think from our research, many of our patients who answered about time frame of trauma responded that their trauma occurred 10, 20, 30 years ago. I sort of wonder how much perspective young kids have on their life and experiences and if they view them as traumatic or if they just view them as this is just my life like I have to live how I live there's some conflicting opinion at least for me doing a study like this in pediatric patients what about you Gronya? just because there's challenges doesn't mean it necessarily will lead to mental health issues I think a lot of people cope with an awful lot of change and pain physical or psychological and actually find helpful coping strategies, find good peer support networks, develop a resilience, develop a way to live. So I would say challenges don't necessarily always knock someone off their path. Sometimes people just adapt and adjust and find their way. We'll be right back after this quick break. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds and hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals. Generally speaking, a diagnosis of any kind is a key part of how healthcare professionals communicate with their patients and each other. It can guide logical decisions about which intervention, if any, is most appropriate or whether no intervention is the optimal option. For the patient's sake, A diagnosis can provide reassurance that their situation is not unique, mysterious, or unexplained, and that there is a body of knowledge and experience that can be leveraged in providing help and support, while assisting the patients themselves in making evidence-informed decisions about their care. The development and standardization of sensitive diagnostic assessment instruments and tools is critical here, and the same applies to mental health. In the bleeding disorder field, we don't have a lot of tools that have been validated for our population. So that is a barrier. We need to be harmonizing our data so that we're utilizing the same type of tools, that we can evaluate one study against another and know that they've been measured in a similar manner. Part of research is taking something and recreating it to see if you get the same results. 
And that's an important aspect of looking at data. Have things changed? Have they gotten better? Have they gotten worse? Are they the same? From a scientific point of view, it would be really worthwhile to have every centre in the UK using the same um, standardised mental health questionnaires so that we actually had a true representation of what is the norm in our young people. We could start with parent measures up until they're 11 or 12 and then do adolescence measures and then adult measures and actually we would get a true reflection of what it is like to live with haemophilia as a chronic illness. Also as care teams we could see when there was dips so we could know when to offer help without necessarily expecting a young person to ask for it which is not necessarily their norm at that developmental age when the last thing they want to do is talk to adults and all they want to do is be with their friends. I don't think we have the tools available to measure medical PTSD. We have something called the PCL-5. Short for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Checklist. Which is like the current standardized assessment tool to measure post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a 20 question Likert scale tool. It asks whether or not someone has experienced a trauma in a single event. When you have a trauma like a single event, like a car accident or sexual assault, a patient will experience intrusion symptoms, so flashbacks of the event, traumatic memories, and it will live in the present moment in your life. But it's much different when you have a chronic illness. It can be much more present-focused or future-focused. So you can be thinking like, okay, my intrusion symptoms are much more fear of future hospitalizations, fear of developing an inhibitor, fear of passing my hemophilia onto my children. Those symptoms manifest much differently. Avoidance symptoms also manifest differently if you have a chronic illness, where you can't avoid something that's internal inside your body in the same way that you could avoid, like if you're in a car accident, well, I just don't want to get in a car. Maybe you can avoid that more easily than something that's somatic inside of you. Patients, we think about how they numb themselves, maybe if they're turning to substance use or overindulging in potential narcotic medications, not adhering to their treatment regimen. All of these manifestations are quite different. And the PCL-5 only measures trauma as it happens in a one-time event, not ongoing. So in this instance, what can we do about it? Where do you even start when it comes to diagnostic and patient-reported outcome tools? Once again, Randy Curtis. You don't really have to reinvent a tool. What you really have to look at is what do you want to see at the end? If you're really looking at interventions, if you're really looking at strategies to impact this problem, you build that first and see what you need to collect in order to get to that point. Then you go out and look for tools. One of the problems that I've seen in data collection all these years is that people say, oh, let's collect this and oh, let's collect that. And then you go collect all this data and three years later you say, oh, I wish we'd have collected this other thing, right? So the important thing is to start at the end and design what you want to do with the data and how you want to impact this population. Then you can go look for tools. But even with the right tools, researching mental health and people living with hemophilia and other bleeding disorders presents its own unique challenges. Dr. Michelle Wickop and Samantha Carlson illustrate this for us. One of the barriers that you come up against is that people just don't feel that this is an issue and so they don't want to participate. This comes from a provider perspective, too. I really had problems with trying to get providers to participate in the research that I was doing because they were uh, of the opinion that mental health was not an issue. So I, this isn't something I need to participate in. It's not just from the stigma of I don't want to participate because I might be labeled as having a mental health issue. It's also from a provider perspective of that's not an issue we don't need to address it. Studying mental health in folks that are under the age of 18 gets complicated because we have a lot of regulations around how we can study children, how we can study young adults. If you're under the age of 18 in the United States, your parents have to be involved. From a mental health code, that gets complicated because patients might not always want to disclose their mental health to their parents or their guardians. We hope they will, and we hope we can bridge those gaps. But it gets very complex. So we're really looking at what those intricacies are for young adults and people under the age of 18, as well as adults. 
You may remember Dr. Bobby Tran characterizing the process of transition from child-centered to adult-orientated healthcare and the widely acknowledged view that a well-planned transition enables young people to optimize their physical and mental health, to independently manage their condition and to assume adult roles and functioning. In spite of the critical importance of this topic, however, action is still required to support young people living with haemophilia to cross the transition chasm. Let's return to Dr. Tran, followed by Dr. Michelle Whitcop. To my knowledge, there is no good mental health tools or interventions to help successfully transition patients from adolescence to adulthood. There are guidelines available. These do allow for marking milestones at each stage of the transition process. There's also areas for growth with different goals and objectives in order to meet these milestones. One of the challenges is that these guidelines need to be updated and also need to be modified for patients with different severities as well as different inherited bleeding disorders in order to help gauge successful transition. Transition shouldn't be something that just all of a sudden happens. It should be something that starts very early and is a stepwise occurrence. And at all of those steps, mental health should be considered. We should be having an ongoing conversation and that conversation should include the family. It should include the child so that we understand where they are, how they feel, and what are their barriers, what are their facilitators, what did they find easy, and what are they finding difficult, and how can we help them in those areas? It shouldn't be that all of a sudden they turn 18 and we go, oh, hey, we need to do all of this stuff. They should be starting when they're eight or even younger. Then it's not quite this overwhelming process. As for research, I absolutely feel that research should be involved in that. And not only from the perspective of looking at the child moving through those stages, but also how the interaction between their family. We just don't have a lot of research on caregiver and family issues in our community and how they impact growth and change as these children move forward. In oncology, we see a ton of caregiver research done, and you can see so many corollaries with our community. Children who have had pediatric cancers grow up to have more chronic pain. So then I look at our kids, and I think about the amount of pain they have from just pokes, from bleeds. What about their mental health? I think, what happens to their siblings? We have no idea. What about our caregivers, our parents, the grandparents? What about their mental health? We know it takes a village in order to support our families, but do we look at that village? Do we take into consideration what is happening to them? And then reflect back how this impacts the child as a transition from all of these different stages. It impacts how they perceive medical care, how they interact with healthcare professionals, with medical care in the future, how they decide to adhere to their medications. All of the issues surrounding mental health is impacted from the very beginning. There's so many areas that we could research, and we are not yet. It goes without saying, advocacy is an important means of raising awareness on mental health issues within the bleeding disorders community and will help lead to improvements in policy and service development, especially when inefficient provision of psychological services has already been identified, such as in the UK. Between November of 2018 to January of 2020, the Quality Review Service, a now defunct, impartial body that carried out high-level quality improvement assessments, conducted a peer review program of 37 United Kingdom care providers for people living with inherited and acquired hemophilia and other bleeding disorders, 28 of which were designated comprehensive care centers. 
the review revealed that around two-thirds of CCC, Comprehensive Care Centers, in the UK had no designated psychological support whatsoever. Dr. O'Brien explains. If you are a centre that has no access to psychology, then it would be an unfair expectation that a nurse or a physiotherapist or a medic would have the same psychological knowledge, but they definitely can do a lot of really good work in a psychologically informed way. Since that peer audit occurred, the lack of psychological care was highlighted as a massive deficit in UK comprehensive care of haemophilia. Since then, there has definitely been investment in psychological care across the UK, and we have just actually started to do a benchmarking exercise across the UK to understand exactly what does exist, where and how much, etc. I guess as a representation on our emailing list, we had maybe 18, 19 names on our list pre-2018. We now have 35 names. So that is quite a jump. I'm aware there's also some trainee psychologists and some assistant psychologists who will work into some of these teams. It definitely feels like it's on an upward trajectory because I, I think other healthcare professionals and people with bleeding disorders are seeing it as a worthwhile investment. What about from across the pond? Samantha and Dr. Wickhop give us NHF's take on it. There is a huge push for mental health services, advocacy and education, but we know that all starts with research. We need to have the data to be able to prove what the need is in the community. And our approach is to go directly to the patients, the people living with the health disorder and the people that care for them. Caregivers have those issues too. We need to develop a research culture within our community. And this has to start at all levels. It isn't something that is just for physicians who are doing research. It has to be all providers who are participating in research, whether they're doing it, whether they're supporting it, whether they're taking the data from that research and translating it to their practice. It has to be with our patients, with what we are now calling our subject matter experts, our SMEs, that they engage in this, that they understand research and that they recognize they're part of this their priorities. They've been saying for a long time that mental health is an important thing for us to study. Recently, the National Hemophilia Foundation had the State of the Science Summit. From that, we're moving forward with what we're calling the building of the National Research Blueprint. The goal is to make the health priorities for the population that we serve for the next 10 years. Where do we want to see research advance? Where do we see those gaps? And how do we need to advance it as a whole community, not just NHF. We need to mobilize our partners in the community, other nonprofits and industry partners to move forward to support research. I'm very excited to say that mental health is one of the five priority action teams that they created this year. We actually just had an SME summit in Washington, D.C. for the National Research Blueprint. We had a half-day conversation about mental health and what those intricacies are and what we need to be really looking at. Because what we think is important may not be what they think is important. We need to meet in the middle and talk about how we can advance it together. When we talk about intersectionality, is a combination of that lived patient experience. We are gathering that through Community Voices in Research. Abbreviated as CVR the community-based registry that we have, as well as the provider-based information that we get through other sources. Clinical data is really important to have all of those measures, the lab values, the findings from your visits over time, the validated tools, but then that lived experience of what it's actually like, what are you feeling, what is your mental health, what are your social engagements, all of those types of feelings that we're getting in CVR, that's important too, to marry those two and put that together so that researchers have the ability to utilize both sources of data as they answer their research questions. I think that's going to be important. That gives a well-rounded aspect of what it is like to live with a bleeding disorder from the clinical's perspective as well as the personal perspective. That will help make research 
more robust and that will drive change in the future. I think we can learn a lot from each other in the U.S. as well as internationally. We're a small community and we all have the same goal. My colleagues that developed CVR, Maria Santaella and Michelle Whitcub, have done an amazing job creating this registry. And we're taking it to the next level. We're upgrading it to 2.0 family. If there's another organization that's interested outside of the U.S. that really wants to get the community voice and start a registry of their own, I would highly encourage them to reach out to our department. We would love to build those relationships. I know that they've had several international projects and we're looking at a couple more this year. We're nearing the end of episode six of the Global Hemophilia Report. But before we do, there's one significant section of our community that is yet to be directly referenced with respect to mental health during this transitional life stage. And that's the perspectives and requirements of girls and young women living with inherited bleeding disorders. A study conducted by McLaughlin and colleagues in 2012 aimed to identify the factors related to health-related quality of life of young people aged between 13 to 25 living with haemophilia A, haemophilia B and von Willebrand disorder. Of the 108 respondents, 17% were female. Using the physical and mental component summary scores on the short-form 36 health survey questionnaire, or SF36 for sure, which is an eight-scale self-reported measure of health, the investigators reported that adolescent and young adult females with a bleeding disorder had lower physical health-related quality of life when compared with young men in the study, including a negative impact on mental health outcomes, which previously correlated with gynecological and pregnancy-related bleeding. The authors suggest that the interaction between age, sex, bleeding disorder type and health-related quality of life should be further researched and evaluated. The last word from our contributors goes to Randy. I think the problems that are experienced by women with bleeding disorders, particularly the women with mild hemophilia from being in the carrier state, some of them with severe phenotypes, I can understand why they would be exhibiting lots of stress and anxiety because they've been underdiagnosed and ignored by the medical community for most of their lives. And they have a lot of anxiety built up around that. Even now, I would imagine most of them are not getting the kind of care they need. I would think of all of these problems we're talking about, that would be a group that we have tools, we have medications, we have the knowledge to treat these women with bleeding disorders that could fix that, or at least make their lives much more livable. And once again, getting back to the adolescent group, we need to take those tools and implement them as young women with bleeding disorders and to prevent this kind of angst and anxiety and depression in later years. We will explore some of these issues in much more depth in the next episode of the Global Hemophilia Report, which will be fully dedicated to women and girls living with inherited bleeding disorders. Adolescent mental health is highly complex, and simply having a chronic condition like hemophilia can put a young person at greater risk of anxiety and depression. As we've come to learn, the research and patient community has yet to really grapple with these concepts in young people living with haemophilia. And evidently, more needs to be done in order to support and enhance their transition to adult-orientated healthcare and to protect their well-being today and in the future. Having grown up listening to Linkin Park, I was absolutely devastated by the news that frontman Chester Bennington the inspiration behind my dyed blonde hair as a teen, took his own life in 2017. A silver lining, if any, is that attitudes towards mental health in some cultures and broader society has been slowly shifting, fostered by public figures opening up about their own experiences of mental illness that help to normalize conditions and vocabulary and challenge assumptions. Remember, if you or someone you know or love is struggling emotionally, you and they are not alone. Help is available both in the bleeding disorders community and beyond. For general mental health advice and support, try turning to your local, regional or national patient organisation near to you. The World Health Organisation also provides a series of multimedia resources with practical tips to help you keep mentally healthy and to reduce stress. 
Just head to who.int for details. In the event of mental distress, the first step is to talk to someone you trust. If you feel you need it, seek help from a trained professional. And that is a wrap. And not just for this episode, but also for my time as the primary host of the Global Hemophilia Report. I am officially handing over the presenting reins to Lawrence. Thank you to everyone who has contributed to the series so far and to the listeners, you are in safe hands. You can catch me over at the Bloodstream podcast with my co-host Amy Board, where at least twice a month we take a 360-degree look at the bleeding disorders community in a show full of news, interviews, and informed opinionating. Subscribe to Bloodstream anywhere you subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report and learn more at bloodstreammedia.com. It's been an honor to host the Global Hemophilia Report, and Lawrence, I couldn't think of a better set of hands to guide the show from here. Thank you, and good luck. Thank you, Patrick. And we would also like to thank this episode's guests, Amanda Stahl, Randy Curtis, Dr. Bobby Tran, Dr. Gronya O'Brien, and Dr. Michelle Whitcock and Samantha Carlson, who served as advisors on this episode as well. Thank you to Global Haemophilia Report Senior Advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly, and to our featured advertiser, Sanafi. For a list of links to the reference research and other aspects to do with bleeding disorders and mental health, please take a look at the program notes for this episode in your podcast player, or visit this episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. To be notified when the next episode drops, be sure to subscribe to the Global Haemophilia Report podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And make sure to share this episode with friends or colleagues in the field. You'll also find the Global Haemophilia Report social media pages on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to our producer, Keith Cornerluck, our editor, Jose Miguel Baez, graphic designer, Christina Newhard, creative director, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and executive producers, Amy Board, Rob Bradford, and Ryan Geelan. My name is Lawrence Willard, and you've been listening to the Global Haemophilia Report. Until next time. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals.